This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study in God's word, let's ask his guidance and direction this morning. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have preserved it down through the centuries, and we have a tremendous privilege in having our own copy of your word, even though in translation before us and an accurate translation that enables us to understand your truth and to live our lives according to your truth. And it is that basis through God, the Holy Spirit, on the basis of your word that we grow and mature as believers. The active agent is the Holy Spirit. The content is your word. And it is your word that it, because it is truth that sets us apart and we grow spiritually. So, Father, we pray now as we focus upon your word that you would uh, help us to submit to that which is taught in your word and that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to each of us how it needs to be applied in terms of our own thinking and our own actions. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are engaged in a cosmic spiritual battle. Scripture teaches us that this battle is not something that is focused on people and physical, material enemies. We often get in conflict with people, but they're ultimately not the, the uh, enemy. The enemy is invisible, Scripture teaches. The enemy is Satan, and the enemy is the hordes of his demons that um, uh, that are arrayed against us, and we can't see them at all. We have no knowledge of them. We can't intuit them. We cannot guess them. We, in fact, we would not know that there were even angels or a devil if the Word of God didn't tell us. And that is at the very core of what Paul is dealing with in terms of what is sometimes uh, called the Colossian heresy. And this is the heresy, the false teaching that he is correcting in this part of the epistle, focusing on not so much identifying who the false teachers are or every aspect of what they teach, but focusing on it enough so we understand the basic themes of this heresy, this false teaching that distracted the Colossian believers from a complete and total dependence upon uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, a reliance upon his sufficiency. 
But we learn something, I think, in especially the rest of chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3 by studying the, the results of this heresy or the beliefs of this heretical thought. By studying that, we come to understand basic trends in all false religions, all false philosophies, all ideas that, that are generated by uh, the world system. The world system is really a manifestation of the thinking of Satan. Now, let's, let me talk about that just a minute. In eternity past, we know that at some point, we don't know how long ago, God created the angels. He created every angel individually. Angels don't marry, propagate, have little baby angels. All, every angel is created as an autonomous species. There's no... Uh, no, no propagation whatsoever. So there's no unity. There's no genetic unity among the uh, among the uh, angels. This is one reason why you cannot. God did not design a salvation for them like the salvation we have. Is Christ can die for us because He partakes of our genetic, physical genetic makeup. He is a full human being. So he can die as a substitute for other human beings. But you, you, you don't have that with, in the angelic realm because there's not that organic unity among the angels. And the highest of all the angelic beings that God created was one that we have identified uh, based on a Latin word used in the translation of Isaiah chapter uh, 14, 12 through 14, as uh, Lucifer, the angel of light. In fact, in Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter uh, uh, chapter eleven, talks about how Satan appears as an and his ministers appear as an angel of light, and uh, <clears throat> verse chapter Second uh, Corinthians chapter eleven verse fourteen says, "And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers." also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. And there he has in mind when he talks about Satan's ministers, he's talking about uh, preachers, teachers, pastors, purveyors of false religious systems that are teaching contrary to the revelation of God. And in, in eternity past, this beautiful creature from the descriptions we have in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, this creature was the most beautiful of all the creatures that God had created. He's the most uh, intelligent. He's the most powerful. He has the most capabilities of any creature that God ever, ever created. He can do anything and everything that all of the other angels could do and far beyond what they could do. And he became full of himself. This is the original sin of the universe. It's, it's arrogance. He became full of himself, and he decided that he wanted to be worshipped in God's place. And so Isaiah records five statements, five I will statements that uh, summarize the mentality of Satan. But there's one word that really focuses on what happened at that instant, and that is the word rebellion. For the very core of this angelic conflict, this spiritual warfare, 
is an assault on the authority of God. So that at the very core of spirituality, at the very core of life itself, is the issue of authority. Who's in charge? Who determines truth? Who controls the decisions of our lives? Who is the one who is really uh, the, the source of truth? on the basis of which we can then evaluate and understand everything else in life. And so the issue is really an issue of authority. Who is in charge? Who's the boss? Who has the right to determine the nature of reality? Is it a creature or is it the creator? Now, when we look at this in terms of the episode with with Lucifer, we say, oh, it's easy to answer that. It's the creator. But then when it comes to the decisions that you and I make on a day-to-day basis, when we decide against God, what we've done is we have followed Satan in his rebellion when we choose to disobey God. And so Satan's original rebellion manifested certain universal characteristics. There is an an emphasis on uh, independence or autonomy, I like to use the word autonomy because then I can have a little alliteration with with antagonism. Uh, it's autonomy. It's an emphasis that I don't need God. Oh, I need him for some things. Maybe I need him for a lot of things. But when push comes to shove in our lives, we don't need God. We want to do it our way. That's the, that's the autonomy aspect. The second aspect is, is, is antagonism. Because when we assert our independence, sort of think back to when you were 14 or 15 or maybe a little younger, and you asserted your independence from your parents, and it wasn't the way that they wanted you to assert your independence, then what happened? You had a conflict of the wills, and you were happy with that, right? No, you were angry. You became hostile, and that's what happens. There's a generation of antagonism toward God, a rejection of his authority, a hostility toward him, and we we think that God is just this major party pooper in the sky, and that's how a lot of people really think about God. But God is the one who, by definition, knows all things. He knows all that will be and all that could be. He knows all the actual. He knows all the possible. And God is perfectly righteous. And when you combine his perfect righteousness with his absolute and perfect knowledge, then that means that when God expresses his will in terms of our lives, then he's not doing it out of ignorance. He's not doing it out of of selfishness that he just wants to limit our party time, uh, limit our capabilities to do all that we want to do and be all that we want to be, to use modern phrases. He knows what, where all of that goes, where independence leads. Independence from God always leads to disaster, no matter how much uh, success or uh, happiness may be experienced in the short term. It always leads to disaster. So the thinking of Satan is characterized on these two basic elements, the element of autonomy or independence from God, and the element of antagonism toward God. And often that antagonism toward God is a self-righteous antagonism that wraps itself in the cloak 
the disguise of righteousness, which is what we see here in 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 14. Uh, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, and his ministers transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. And so there is this disguise so that when we're facing something that is in opposition to God, it is often cloaked in light and righteousness. That's a pseudo-light and a pseudo-righteousness. Where it gets a little difficult for us and a little personal for us is that we have, by the time we were two or three years old, mastered this element within our own uh, sin nature and our own soul in terms of self-deception. So we have managed to cloak all of our self-centered desires in the same robes of righteousness and light. We're masters of self-justification before we probably have a vocabulary of 300 words. So this sets up for us the basic trend of, of history, that within the human race, ever since Adam and Eve followed Satan in his sin, because their sin was the same sin, it was a rejection of divine authority. God had revealed his will to them, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan came along with an appeal to empiricism. See, it looks good. And an appeal to, in, in, in a sense, to rationalism. See, God really doesn't want the best for you. He's keeping something for you. So he's provided a rationale for them. And so they reject the authority of God and substitute their own authority there. They're looking inside themselves to find the answers rather than to the revelation of God. And the result was what? They fell under condemnation of sin. They died spiritually immediately, and the entire human race, the progeny of Adam and Eve, were plunged into sin. Why? Because they rejected authority. That's the issue. Heresy False teaching is all built and predicated upon a rejection of what God has said. It's based on this rejection of the authority of God's revelation. And so as we see here in Colossians uh, chapter, uh, in Colossians chapter uh, 2, and we look at all of the characteristics that I'll develop out in just a minute, we see that there is a shift in, in terms of their orientation to authority. They've rejected the authority of Scripture, but they don't say it. Sounds like a modern politician. Don't believe what they say. Look at their actions. Modern politicians are adept at saying the right thing, especially when it's an election year. And you often hear the right thing, but then you stop and look at what is done, you realize that actions don't match words. And this is true in many, many fields of intellectual activity. And so what you have is that people who will say, oh, I believe in the sufficiency of Christ. But then they turn right around and they're practicing things that deny the sufficiency of Christ because they, they, they don't have a firm, complete, 100% commitment to the sufficiency of Scripture. It's Scripture plus. 
but they're going to cloak that in language of Scripture alone. And we all do that, practically speaking, every time we sin. Every time we commit sin, what we're basically saying is, God's word's wrong right now. I'm choosing my word is right, and I'm going to do my word. It's a rejection of, of authority. So we look at all kinds of other teaching that's not strictly biblical, and here I'm including that all under the idea of heresy. That's all false teaching. It, it involves those two broad categories that imitate Satan's thought. That is autonomy and antagonism. Now, let me take this to another, another level. Back in the uh, 1500s, as uh, Spain, the kingdom of Spain, was beginning to expand its exploration of North America, uh, one of the great warriors, uh, military heroes of Spain was Cortez. Cortez brought a small group of Spanish soldiers, landed on the coast of Mexico, and began to march on uh, Mexico City uh, to attack the Aztecs. And you all know the story about how they uh, destroyed and defeated Montezuma and Aztec religion. Now, if you're of a certain age, you've been brainwashed into thinking that, oh, those poor poor, uh, Aztecs, they're the victims of... Western European aggression. Well, one of the reasons that that Cortez was able to defeat uh, the Aztecs was because as his small group of, of soldiers advanced on Mexico City, they picked up allies in numerate, from the numerous Mexican tribes along the way who all hated the Aztecs because the Aztecs uh, practiced human sacrifices and they would sacrifice on their temples uh, human beings, and they would practice ritual cannibalism. And they would get their sacrifices not from their own tribe, but from these tribes that they had defeated in, in Mexico. And so the other tribes who had been the victims of the aggression of the Aztecs over the over the years and centuries, viewed the Spaniards as their their deliverers, as their rescuers. Uh, but that's not how modern history teaches it. But but the reason that the Aztecs did that, my point is that that was all part of their religious system. Uh, they worshipped uh, part of their religious statement, the God that uh, that they worshipped. I'm not going to uh, uh, butcher any Nahuatl this morning, so I'm not going to pronounce his name. Uh, but uh, it was a, was pictured by a serpent. Now, who else shows up in history as a serpent? So it's a demonically inspired religion. False religions are all ultimately demonically inspired. Now, you look at that religion, you study all about their religion, and it is just a horrible, gross perversion. It's just re- absolutely revolting. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there are manifestations of of uh, liberal Christian religion that deny the Trinity, deny the total depravity of man, and deny Jesus, but they meet in various uh, churches and part of various denominations that that no longer really treat the Bible as something that has any authority, but they, they like the morality of uh, Christianity, and so they try to separate that from the Bible and follow that. And they're good people. They're wonderful people. 
They don't go out and commit human sacrifice. They're not cutting anybody's heart out and eating it while it's still beating. You know, they don't do anything like that. They're not drinking the blood from live human sacrifices. And they preach peace and goodness and anti-war and let's be good to the good to the planet and good to the environment and lots of really nice-sounding, wonderful things. You have other religious systems that are part of America or part of other parts of the, of the world, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, Mormonism, that have their own pantheon of deities. Yeah, Mormonism is included there because every human being can become a god. One of the little sayings in Mormonism is, as you are, God was. So that means the God that they're worshiping, the God of this planet that they call Elohim, isn't really the same God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of the Christians. Because as God is, God was, you are, as God is, you can be. So it is a gospel of, of Godhood, offering deity to those who are initiated into the secret rites of, of uh, Mormonism. And if you buy into that, and, and only if you are invited by the bishops with the right testimony from the right people to enter into the temple, you can't go into a temple. You can go to, they have a little guest house or guest chapel you can visit. But you, no one who's not a temple Mormon past the test can get inside to the inner areas where there are these secret uh, initiates and secret rites and you you get to wear the special underwear and all of the other things that go along that go along with that. You know, they got the special underwear from some ideas within Freemasonry at the time, but that's all another subject. You have all these different views. They're all manifestations of of human viewpoint. They're all manifestations ultimately of Satan's thinking before the fall. Now, let's take this another level. That means that every person, including you, when you're not operating on the Scripture, is either going to be operate, is operating on this satanic system of thought based on independence and antagonism towards God. It doesn't matter what the specifics or the details of those religious systems or philosophical systems might be. They're all just different manifestations and facets of the same satanic viewpoint, the same human viewpoint. And these various philosophies are the philosophies that are promoted over against true biblical Christianity in the world. So you have false religious systems from the ancient uh, uh, pantheistic and polytheistic religions in the ancient world all the way up to uh, various modern ethical uh, ethical religious or ethical philosophical systems that came out of the Enlightenment. doesn't matter what the details are. They're all the same cosmic thinking. So I use the example, let's say, of a New England, a New England Unitarian Protestant of the, of the 1840s. Uh, we could take somebody historical like Charles Grandison Finney. 
You may even hear, first time I, I heard about Charles Grandison Finney was on one of these little shows they had around 9 o'clock, 10, 9.30 on KHCB years ago, and they would, they would spotlight a different person, a different Christian in history all the time. And I remember hearing one about, about Charles Finney, and I thought, well, isn't that interesting? And they, they had a, it was like a drama uh, thing on the radio, and they had you know, a multi-part story of, of Finney's life. I came to find out later that Finney did not believe in total depravity. He did not believe that every person is born a condemned sinner. He believed every person is born in the same state Adam was created. He didn't believe in a substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. He believed in a, a what's called a moral government view of the atonement. And he, he didn't believe in a premillennial view of the coming of Christ because since man is born basically good, man is improvable, and at corporately, man needs to be improved as a society. And when man improves as a society, he will create a utopic environment. And then Jesus will return after that kingdom, that utopic kingdom is created. And that's called post-millennialism. Now, Finney is considered by almost every historian of Christianity to be the preeminent evangelist and preacher of the Second Great Awakening in America, which occurred from about 1810 to about 1840. But Finney isn't teaching biblical Christianity, but he is preaching righteousness and morality, and he's just wonderful. But if you believe what Finney preached, where are you going to end up? Eternity in the lake of fire. If you go down to Mexico a couple of centuries earlier with uh, Montezuma and you believe that system, where are you going to end up? Same place. And let me tell you, which is better? The legalistic asceticism and self-righteousness of uh, Charles Finney or the uh, cannibalism and the polytheism of the Aztecs? not from a practical viewpoint in terms of its impact on culture, but from a divine viewpoint, from God's perspective, which is better. Now think about that a little bit. I'm going to tie this to a couple of things for you this morning. Some years ago, I think this was about 99 or so, I gave a paper on demon possession and the Christian at the Conservative Theological Society meeting in Fort Worth. I really wasn't prepared for the questions I was going to get after I gave the paper. Uh, most people there agreed with my conclusions about the fact that uh, a Christian could not be demon-possessed, but this was at the very beginning of the Harry Potter craze. And so people were all bent out of shape about, <clears throat> about parents who would let their children read a book about a wizard who was performing magic. And so they would ask me, well, what, what do I think of that? You know, obviously I knew what they wanted me to say. Oh, this is promoting demonism and this is terrible and you shouldn't let your children read Harry Potter. Well, if we understand what ultimate demon influence is, demon influence produced Charles Grandison Finney and his righteous New England righteous morality. And demon influence produces Montezuma and the Aztecs. So if my choice is between moral worldliness or moral satanic thought and immoral satanic thought, which is better? 
There's no difference. Now, you go look at many, many films and movies that were produced in America in the 30s and the 40s, and they're great movies, but they promote the same secular, civic, religious view of God that comes out of religious liberalism of the 19th century. It's worldliness. Oh, it's nice and it's sweet and it's oriented to a lot of establishment truths, but guess what? It's just as evil as Montezuma. It's just as evil as the ancient Baal priests of Jezebel uh, that Elijah slaughtered on Mount Carmel in the ancient world. But, oh, you know, we want to draw this distinction between black evil and white evil. Uh, There's an application to this I see right now in terms of our presidential elections. And I hear people say, well, so-and-so is a Mormon or so-and-so doesn't believe this or so-and-so doesn't believe this. Let me tell you, they've all been operating on pure human viewpoint, satanic thought for at least four or five decades. It's one form of evil versus another form of evil. Don't make the mistake that because one holds one thing that you think, oh, that's evil. That's a cult. Well, you know, the last president we had came out of a Methodist church, and I questioned, and they they applied the term evangelical to him, and he was often accused of being one of those terrible dispensationalists who believed Jesus is going to come back in Israel and the rapture, and he's just trying to uh, he's just trying to make prophecy come true. I doubt that George Bush ever heard the word dispensational or even knew what a rapture was. He came out of a liberal Methodist church which teaches liberal theology. Now, he might be saved. He might end up in heaven, but that doesn't mean his thinking is any less demonic than that of Montezuma or a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Buddhist. We have to think in terms of biblical categories here. Now, this is background. I've gotten off beyond what I wanted to talk about today, but it all fits with this because, you see, there is an appeal that heresy has to every one of us. And it may appeal to your, your the self-righteousness of your sin nature or it may appeal to the licentiousness of your sin nature. But just because you're a believer and you spend a lot of time studying the Word doesn't always mean that you and I have it always together in terms of our own thinking. And that's what's happening in this particular congregation in Corinth is that that they are not overtly denying the cross. They're not overtly denying Jesus. They're not overtly denying the truth. They're doing it in a much more subtle way. They're saying they're adding something. They don't they're they're, they're and what's the result is is that the sufficiency and preeminence of Jesus is being distorted, diluted, and lost. But they're not saying we don't believe in Jesus. They may even say we believe Jesus is sufficient, but what they do is contradictory to that affirmation. There's not a person in here who hasn't done something like that. We're all just as guilty. Whether or not that is a dominant trait in our life, well, that's another matter. So this is why Paul addresses this in Colossians 2, 6 through 8. He says, Therefore, have you, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did we receive Jesus as Lord? 
we understood Jesus Christ is the one and only way to heaven. That is the one most offensive aspect of Christianity to everybody else in the world, is that we believe Jesus is the only way. That And, and re, what's interesting is recent surveys of younger generations of Christians don't affirm that because they've been brainwashed by this worldly thinking that, that exclusivity is, is you're, you're being so judgmental of other people. This is a big element in the uh, emergent church movement, is, uh, and that's why they don't emphasize biblical teaching or biblical exposition, is because if you get very far in teaching the Bible, you're saying some things that, that exclude some people, and you're saying some things that make it sound like other people have it all together, and that's true. There's one and only one way. There's one and only one way into the ark, one and only one way into the uh, tabernacle or temple, one and only one way into heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. If God is a creator, it only makes sense that God makes the rules, and we can't question that at all. So Paul says, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. They receive Christ Jesus the Lord as completely sufficient to solve their sin problem. They trusted in him. So how do we walk in him? We walk by faith, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. We trust in him as the sufficient solution to all problems in life. That if we try to solve problems apart from him in independence and in in antagonism to him, then what happens is there may be short-term benefits, but we haven't really addressed the core issue, which is always a spiritual issue. And you can't bl- blend the two and say, well, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that, and then later I'll solve the sin problem. No, that's not how it works. In Colossians 2.7, Paul says that this is because we have already been rooted in him, a perfect tense participle there, and now we are being built up in him and established in the faith. That is where it happens. In him, in Christ, because he is sufficient. All the way through here, this emphasis on his sufficiency. Now, in verse 8, he introduces the first allusion to this problem in Corinth, and he says, beware, watch out, be alert, keep your spiritual eyes open. That means you have to have some kind of uh, teaching or truth in your soul to be able to properly evaluate critically think about things because as Paul warned the Ephesian elders when he met with them in Miletus, as it's recorded in, uh, in, in Acts chapter 20, is that he is saying uh, there are going to be wolves that come and attack the flock from outside and some of you are going to, are going to lead them astray as well that there are going to be pastors and preachers and teachers that, that we trust that go off track, and they are going to be a source of deception as well. This kind of thing was, was happening here, and that's happened in Jude. When I'm out of town and we go through the Jude study, um, that's, what, that's what's happening in Jude. Second Peter, or in First Peter, Peter warned that this was going to happen, Jude writes to say it, it, it has happened. The, the false teachers are now in your midst, and so you need to be aware of them. But in, in here, Paul is saying that they, the, the, this group of false teachers, this, this ideology, religious system, has already infected the body of Christ in Colossae. 
So it involves being deceived and cheated because when you live your life on anything generated by the sin nature, no matter how moral it may be or how good it may be, it has no lasting value. It will be wood, hay, and straw at the judgment seat of Christ. And so that will rob us of eternal rewards. Uh, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So here's the contrast. On the one hand, you have the thought systems developed by man, which are seen to be parallel to the basic principles of the world. Now, this is a use of the world here, the Greek word cosmos, which indicates that system of thinking that is promoted by, by Satan. He is the prince and the power of the world. We are, Paul says in Romans 12, too, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's this contrast here. You're either one or you're the other. You're either operating according to the traditions of man and worldly thinking, which is human viewpoint, which is also satanic viewpoint. And when you're out of fellowship, you're operating on worldly thinking, cosmic thinking. You are, in one sense, no different from the Aztec, from the self-righteous New England Unitarian uh, to the pagan Hindu. You're not. Neither am I. We're operating on the same uh, thought system that is antagonistic to God and is asserting its independence against God. So it's either that or it's according to Christ. That's radical. Every moment you are operating one or the other. And what Paul is saying is don't get caught up. Don't get, get buy into a system of thinking that rationalizes away the sufficiency of Christ in your life because that's where our riches are. That's what God has, has given us. We have three enemies the Scripture teaches in terms of, of um, this spiritual battle that we're in. The chief enemy of all is, of course, Satan, who uh, Peter tells us goes around in 1 Peter 5, 8, 9, goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's on the outside. The second enemy is his type of thinking, that, that the sophisticated systems of thought generated from satanic thought, and that's called worldliness in the Bible, or what I just simply refer to as cosmic thinking. Now, that has an attraction to our sin nature, which is the internal enemy, the, the traitor inside the gate, as it were. And each of us has a sin nature. Now, we, we could only operate according to the sin nature before we were saved. That's all you could do. And the sin nature produces relatively good things as well as what we identify as relative evil. But it's all motivated by something that's even more basic, and that is a, a, it's driven by what I have in the center there, a lust pattern. And that lust pattern is oriented towards, towards basic core desires that are all oriented to me. I have to fulfill my life. It's all up to me. It's me, 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 me. I, 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 I. It's, it is total self-absorption. It's arrogance at the very core. And arrogance at the very core creates these lusts, these desires for things, for people, for substances, for uh, power, uh, that if I have that, then I protect me. If I have that, then, then I am what I want to be. And so it generates these lusts, and lust can trend 
in opposite directions. And that's so we have trend on the one hand towards asceticism and legalism. Asceticism is a, is a spiritual term that relates to the idea that if I give up things, if I deny myself, uh, restrict myself through some sort of rigorous ethical system, then I can become acceptable to God. And so this is manifested as legalism. Legalism is a te- legalism is, doesn't say there are no absolutes or there are no commands for the Christian life. It's always funny. Every now and then I hear somebody, heard this just, just within the last couple of weeks, somebody said uh, they were in a conversation with uh, someone and uh, they were talking about a particular issue and this one individual in the congregation said, well, the Scripture says that, that, that that's wrong. And the response was, well, you're legalistic. No, that's, that, that shows that that person doesn't understand what legalism is. Legalism isn't saying you shall not lie or you should tell the truth. You should love one another. Insisting on the, on the rules and standards and the protocol code for the Christian life isn't legalism. Legalism is saying is that's the basis of God's favor toward us, his grace toward us, and by being obedient, we gain God's grace and blessing. That's legalism. Uh, grace teaches that God's already given us everything. We just need to learn how to live on the basis of it and appropriate it, and that comes by being obedient to him. It's already ours. We just have to learn to live consistently with it so we can learn to exploit what is in our possession. So legalism usually goes hand in hand with asceticism. On the other opposite side, we have trends towards licentiousness, which is, you know, Christ paid for sin, so let's go sin. It's already paid for. Lasciviousness, that's sensual lust patterns or antinomianism, which is also, which is another synonym that we're, there are just no absolutes that we have to apply anymore. Just go live like however you want to. Now, those are all basically moral or ethical ideas. And those moral or ethical ideas uh, also express themselves in terms of how people think. Where it gets complex, and in this diagram I'm simply showing strict analysis of specific patterns, but we all shift around. We One day we wake up and we may be lascivious, the next day we wake up and we're loaded with guilt, and we're legalistic. Yeah, keep a poker face. Don't tell me. I haven't been reading your mail. We all do that. And we're ascetic in one area and we're licentious in another area. But this always also expresses itself in terms of how we think the categories of thought. Are we going to think biblically or are we going to think in terms of the world? The world thinks in terms of rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism. Each of those, independent from the revelation of God, have certain benefits. But ultimately, they're, they're an expression of a rejection of the authority of God. In rationalism, you're saying the human mind alone can come to truth. I don't need God. In empiricism, you're saying, I'm smart enough on the basis of my experience and the experience of other human beings to arrive at truth without any input from God. didn't work for Adam and Eve. It's not going to work for you. Mysticism says that, you know, I just know it in the core of my being, and it feels so good. It's got to be from God. And on the basis of my own interpretation of my feelings, my sense of something, 
it must be true. I'm not going to validate this from the Word of God. It just, it's so real to me. It must be true. Mysticism is also a rejection of divine authority. So they, that all manifests in, in, in different, different ways. So rationalism and empiricism really fits more with legalism. And mysticism fits more with licentiousness or antinomianism, but within the realm of, of thought. So we have to think about This provides such a great tool for self-analysis in terms of what's going on and in terms of analyzing thought systems of other things. You master this, you can handle any philosophy class in any liberal university in the country because they don't believe in sin. But you know the truth, so through the grid of understanding the sin nature, you can evaluate uh, just about everything. Now, we need to understand this Colossian heresy, and the way to do that is we basically, basically just need to reverse engineer it. I don't have time to do that this morning, so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go, go that far, but we need to look at the elements here because Paul doesn't say, well, this is Platonism or Aristotelianism or Gnosticism or incipient Gnosticism or Stoicism or Epicureanism or Essene Christianity or Merkabah mysticism out of Judaism, which are just about all the options. But he tells us the specifics. So by looking at the specifics, we can sort of backtrack to see what what the systems were popular and what blend ended up in the um, in the uh, Osterizer blender of uh, of the thinking of the Colossian believers. They had this syncretistic mix. Thing is, so do you, so do I, because we're all influenced by the culture around us, which is just a potpourri of all kinds of, of inconsistent, illogical, irrational, and sometimes incredibly logical and rational ideas that are contrary to Scripture. And most of them are wrapped in cloaks of righteousness and light, and we can get deceived very easily. And it's amazing how many people we know that we trust that have been sucked into something like that. So that becomes a secondary problem. It just, there's only one way to to cut through it all, and that's to know the Word. And it is the Word of God and the sufficiency of the Word of God under the power of the Spirit that gives us the truth that we use to cut through these issues so that we can understand reality as God created it. But the bottom line is the same issue for you and me as it was for Satan. Are you going to submit to the authority of the Word of God? Are you going to find another way? That's the issue. And it always boils down to that. Is it your will or God's will? A thousand times every day. Your will, God's will. My will, God's will. Jesus had that same option. And rather than following in Satan's pattern or in Adam's pattern, because he was the second Adam, Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that he did not think that his privileges of godhood were worth grasping onto and asserting. And he humbled himself to the point of death. Humility is is the opposite of arrogance. Humility is obedience to the authority of God, And Jesus submitted to that, became a man, and went to the cross, and all that that entailed to fulfill the Father's plan so that sin would be paid for.
And all we have to do is to trust in him. And that's how we have our, the, the primary strategic victory in our life in this warfare. But then we have to exploit it. And so the challenge to everyone is, are we going to exploit it or just say, I'm just glad I'm going to end up in heaven? And a lot of people think that way. But we have to win the battle. And as we studied the uh, other night, we have to learn to love the battle because we can't avoid the battle. So it comes right down to our volition. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the truth of your word, and that the issue is ultimately authority. Are we willing to trust you or are we willing to trust your word? Are we willing to trust in Christ as sufficient, not just for salvation, but also to solve every problem in life? We understand that when we do that, that's not an easy, simple, quick solution, but it is the only real, lasting, substantive solution. Father, we pray that you might help us to develop the knowledge understand biblical information, take that as knowledge, apply it to our life as wisdom under the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that we can indeed produce a life that glorifies you. But that's a challenge. That's a battle. That's recognizing every decision, every day, every moment is a choice, your way or our way. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's never trusted Christ as Savior, they're unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. The, the, the strategic battle from God's viewpoint is one at the cross. The strategic battle in your life is one when you trust in Christ as Savior. After that, it goes on to tactical battles that relate to every decision every day. And we have to learn the word because that is our primary, one of our primary instruments of warfare. It's the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.